the word of God where it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony of God. I'll read that again, sorry. God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I was uh, talking with someone a little while ago, and they told me that their regular practice is to ask the young people in their church uh, whether they're a Christian. And if they say... This is someone who is engaged in youth ministry. It wasn't just kind of a random person. But uh, if, that, if, the, if the young person said yes, or if they said yes, so they would then ask them the question, why do you think that? What reason do you have for thinking that? Does your life actually match what you're claiming to be? It's an important question because often uh, people claim to be something that they're not. And their life testifies against what they say. And in the letter of 1 John, God gives us some tests. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll have seen that, that there are these tests here to know so that we can know whether or not we belong to Jesus. John gives us a number of tests. Do you acknowledge your sin and flee from sin to Jesus for forgiveness? Do you seek to obey God and follow Jesus imperfectly but earnestly? Do you love fellow Christians or do you resent them? Do you believe the truth about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, 
come to earth as a man to save us from our sins. There are four tests that John has given us so far, and this morning there's one more, the last of the tests that John gives. And again, the test, the test is very simple. Chapter 2, verse 15, which Ben read for us, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. If you love the world, you don't love God. And the love of God isn't in you. You haven't been born again by the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Why is love such a definitive test? Well, John says in the next few verses, For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, doesn't come from God, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. A person, uh, John says, who loves the world can't be a Christian, can't be born again, because the love of the world is characteristic of worldly people, not godly people. People who know God look like God. They look like people born into God's family. I don't know if you saw it a few weeks ago, there was a news story about a girl who was found, I can't remember where she was found, but she was a, a, a pale-skinned, blonde-haired girl found with a, a Greek-Roma couple. I don't know if you found that. And they, the police said, we think this, this child's been abducted. You know, and there's this whole sort of story about what had, what had happened. But people realised that a pale-skinned, blonde-haired girl, quite, quite fine features, living with quite dark-skinned, dark-haired couple with quite large features, there was, quite, there was something not quite right. You know, this child probably didn't belong to these people. And uh, a, a woman eventually came forward, and on the news they put up this, the photo of this woman and her family next to a photo of this child who'd been discovered. And they said, can you see the similarities between these, these people? We're used to the idea that we can see similarities between parents and children. That's true in terms of physical features. It's also true in terms of behaviour as well, isn't it? My uh, father does this thing. He, he, does, he does this. Right? That's what he does. And uh, not, like, not quite like that. Uh, that's my own idiosyncratic version, right? But the weird thing is, my sister does that. I do that. Even one of my nieces, so a, a grandchild of my father, even she, one of, one of them, does the hand-rubbing thing, right? How is that? How is that that we pick up not only just genetic uh, similarities, but also behavioural similarities? And the Bible says that those realities are true not just in physical things, but also in spiritual, in the spiritual realm as well. There's a kind of a spiritual genetics. Without Jesus, we take on the natural traits of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who rejected God. They, they turned against God. They rebelled against God. They chose to love the world instead of loving God. And the Bible says that apart from Jesus, that's the traits that we take on. But when we come to know Jesus, we're born again by the Holy Spirit into a new family and we, we receive, if you like, new spiritual genes. And instead of looking like Adam and Eve, we look like Jesus. 
We begin to look like the family that we're born into, God's family. We take on the traits of God and of Jesus. People who are born of God love the things that God loves. And people who aren't born of God love the world. What does it mean to love the world? Uh, It's important, I think, to understand what John means by that and what he doesn't mean. When John says uh, that we shouldn't love the world, he doesn't mean that we shouldn't love anything in the world. He doesn't mean that to love a flower is a great evil. Or to love another person in the world is, is kind of wicked because they're part of the world. That's not what he's talking about. What he means by the world is kind of all the things that are opposed to God, set against God. He gives us an example list. So he says, what does it look like to love the world? He says there's the cravings of the sinful man. That's characteristic of people who love the world. There's the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does. So what are the characteristics of people who love the world? First of all, the cravings of the sinful man. So for John, it's not everything in the world which is bad, but it's the desires which are driven by our sinful hearts, our hearts which dream of having the things which are opposed to God. And it's the cravings, right? It's the passions that John wants us to think about. So, so many people uh, say nowadays, don't they, that I have a passion for something. I have a passion for sports cars, or I have a passion for, I don't know, knitting. And what people mean by that is that that thing drives their life. (laughs) Knitting drives their life. Can you believe it, Peter? I can't believe it. (laughs) But it's true for some people. And what's true kind of in that realm is true in the spiritual realm as well. Our lives sometimes are driven by passions which are set against God. Maybe your life is driven by sinful passions, by deep inner desires that control your life and shape your life in a direction which is kind of the opposite to the direction that God wants you to go. You might be driven by the desire for respect, the desire for people to think well of you. It drives you. It shapes everything that you do. You might be driven by the power, the desire to have power and influence over people. You might be driven by the desire for fame or greatness or even the desire to be the best at what you do. Not, not an aim. I'm not talking about an aim of going, well, it would be great to, great to be better than, uh, than what I am at the moment. No, but it, it's when that becomes a, a passion that drives every aspect of your life. I must be better. How can you tell? You can tell that that's where you're at when, if you don't get it, your life ceases to be meaningful. When you don't achieve what you hope for, you're plunged into kind of this pit of despair. Because you don't get your passion. You might be driven by an insatiable appetite for sex. And you feel that desire with the internet or with prostitutes or with casual sex or even by abusing 
your marriage partner. Sex occupies every thought. It's your great passion in life. You might be driven by the desire for food. Might be fine food, fine wine. Might be rubbish food. But your life revolves around eating. And you're never satisfied unless you're eating and enjoying food. There's almost never just one desire for people who love the world. It's always a complex of interwoven strands and threads, all these things jumbled up together and, and, and included at one time. But when we don't know Jesus, that's the shape of our lives. There's this range of competing passions which vie for our attention and for our hearts. Here are some useful diagnostic questions to work out what, what your passions are and whether they're sinful passions. Here's the first question. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything else? That's a great question to expose what your passions are. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything else? And what if you don't get... Does it seem like your life is not worth living anymore? What if you don't get? Does it seem as though your life is not worth living anymore? If your life is driven by sinful passion, says John, then there's every reason to believe that you don't know Jesus and that you need to flee to Jesus for forgiveness and for, and for life. So John talks about the uh, the cravings of the sinful nature. He also talks about the lust of the eyes as characteristic of loving the world. And this is kind of quite uh, related to the first uh, thing that he's mentioned, except the focus is not so much now on inner desires. So the first it was on, time it was on inner desires, but now it's on desires fueled by what we see around us. Our society is driven by seeing the things that we want. Uh, we receive countless advertising brochures in, uh, in the mail, advertising this or that product. Uh, we bathe in it whenever we go to the shops. There's all these displays and signs showing us what our lives could be like. We broadcast it into our homes on the television and give it our undivided attention, not just in the advertisements, but also in the show, the TV shows and the, and the films, which sell us, often sell us, a lifestyle and hopes and aspirations that are better than our own. And again, what John's talking about is the passions of the eyes. It's the things that captivate us and which drive us. We catch a glimpse of something, we see it, and it captivates our heart and it drives us to get it at all costs. We devise a strategy. We spend every waking moment devising strategies on how to get these things. It's amazing, isn't it, what personal cost people are willing to pay to get the desires of, their, of what they see. So people will sacrifice a lot to be able to afford their dream home. People will 
scrimp and save and penny pinch to be able to get what their eyes have seen. People will sacrifice to be able to afford their dream car. You have to sacrifice a great deal to be able to afford an iPhone contract. People will sacrifice their time and their family, their friendships and their other passions just to get what they want. It's amazing, isn't it? How much we give up for the things that we see. Well, Jesus says it's like that with the gospel as well. That people who see the value of the gospel will sacrifice everything in order to get it. And John wants us to ask the question, what is it that we've seen which has captured our heart? And what is it that we've seen that we're sacrificing everything for? Is it the gospel? Like the man who discovered and went out and sold all that he had. Or is it something less substantial? If your heart is captured by the gospel, then give thanks to God for that great and amazing work. What a miracle. But if your heart is captured by what you see, then John says, flee to Jesus because you don't know him yet and you need to know him. What's really deceptive, I think, is that people can just so distort the Christian life that they think that they're passionate about God, but they're not. They're really only still passionate about what they can see. So people are passionate about worship, or worship in inverted commas, worship services. They're passionate a lot about Jesus, but they're passionate about the feeling of euphoria that they get when they sing a great song or when they meet with a crowd of other Christians. Or people are sold the lie of the prosperity gospel that Jesus promises big houses and, uh, and great jobs and incredible beauty. And people become passionate, but not about Jesus, but about what they think Jesus is going to give them. If your life is driven by the passions aroused by what you see, John says it's an indication that you don't know Jesus and that you need to flee to Jesus for forgiveness and life. The last mark that John gives us of people who love the world is that they're people who boast in what they have and in what they do. See, boasting's so useful as, as a test because it, it uncovers what we really value. If you boast about something, it means that it's close to your heart. If you boast about what you have here in this world and this creation, which is passing away, then that shows, John says, that you don't know God. What is it that, that you boast in? What is it that you love to talk about? Is it your great achievements? Your great holiday? Your great business? Your great kids? 
What is it that you post on Facebook or Instagram? Paul boasted about his weakness because God's power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. I met a pastor recently uh, who undeniably God has used uh, to build his church. He's planted six churches in a barren wilderness in Sydney, spiritual wilderness. And what struck me was that all this guy could talk about was the incredible mercy of God. He said almost nothing about, you know, everybody was there to find out the tips and the strategies and whatever. And all this guy would say was, God is so kind. And all he spoke about was how God had grown that church while his life was falling apart. And while he was spending the first part of every day crying in the shower. What gets you excited? What do you boast about? It's a great test. Our passions show where our heart is. If you boast about the world, you belong to the world. If you boast about God and the gospel, you belong to God. So John says that people who love the world don't know God, but in contrast to that in chapter 5, so that's the chapter 2 stuff, in chapter 5, John says that people who are truly born of God overcome the world. They don't love the world, they overcome the world. What does that mean? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. People who know God overcome the world, they overcome the world because instead of loving the world, they love God. And how do they love God? Well, first of all, they love God by loving the children of God, that is, other Christians. Uh, That was one of the tests that came up a few weeks ago, uh, the love test. We might claim to be a Christian, but if we don't love other Christians, then we don't know God. But what's so interesting is, Uh, what John writes in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, literally, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So the expression uh, in that verse, the world's goods, is the same expression that is used in chapter 2 about people boasting in the world's goods. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, People who love the world boast in the world's goods, right? And then in chapter 3 he says, people who hang on to the world's goods instead of loving their brother don't know God. See, it's a trade-off. The trade-off is between loving the world's goods. That stops us, you see, from loving our fellow Christians. 
When we neglect to love somebody, it's not first and foremost because we lack love. It's actually because we love something else more than that person. We love what we've got or what we'll lose by loving that person. Interesting, isn't it? We love our foxtail. We love our wine club membership or our high bandwidth internet. We love our Dyson vacuum cleaners. And we trade them off against loving people. Not always. But when we do, John says, if we do, if our lives are characterised by trading off what we can get or what we can keep versus who we can love, if that characterises our lives, John says, then we don't know God. That trade-off, I think, helps us to clarify the test. The test is not, do I enjoy these things? But am I trading the lives and the well-being of other Christians for trinkets and baubles? True Christians don't love the world. They love God by loving God's children. Second, we love God, John says, by obeying his commands. Chapter 5, verse 3. This is love for God. Couldn't ask for a clearer indication of what love is. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. We love God by doing the things that God loves, by doing the things that he, he commands. One of the great distortions of the gospel often is that uh, people think that to care about what God commands is to be a legalist. So to care about what God commands is to be uh, a legalist, but to understand the gospel is to be indifferent to what God commands. That's kind of, in stark terms, how it kind of works out. But John says, no, that's not true. Actually, God saves us from sin in order to do what he wants us to do, to, to love what he loves. What's remarkable about the gospel is that Through the gospel, the commands of God aren't burdensome. John says, this is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands aren't burdensome to us. We don't resent God's commands anymore, but we love them and enjoy them because we love God. It's an amazing testimony, I think, in a person's life when the commands of God become delightful. So in the past, you hated it when God said, do this and do that. Love this person. You resented it. And now, it brings great joy. You used to find it hard to do, but more and more, you want to do it. It's not a burden. Because God changes our hearts. If God's commands are a burden to us, then we probably haven't understood the gospel. And we don't know Jesus. 
We haven't been transformed by the Spirit. Because when the Spirit is at work in our lives, we love what God loves. And so we do what God loves. And we do it with all our heart. People who know God overcome the world because instead of loving the world, they love God, they love his children, and they love and obey his commands. I think some of us will be able to look at our lives and see that reality. We'll be able to see the transformation of God in our lives. We'll be able to remember a time when the world held us captive and every desire and every motivation came from that. And yet, you can say as you look at your life that those things have ceased to hold you in the way that they did. You used to love them and yet now, more and more they just seem like cheap trinkets. You can live without them. In the past you thought, how can I ever live without this? And now you think, I don't even care if I have it or not. It doesn't even matter to me. You can see that your love for God has grown. You used to hate the commands of God. You used to be indifferent to holiness. You used to resent it. And now... It's the greatest joy in your life to serve God. Our lives won't be perfect. But once we were obsessed with the world and dead to God, and now more and more we're dead to the world and alive to God. And John says that's the mark of being born again by the Spirit of God. So how does that happen? How do true Christians overcome the world? Well, last of all, John says that true Christians overcome the world by their faith. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do we overcome the world? We overcome our, the world through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In uh, the rest of the verses that Ben read before, John goes on to spell out again the truth claims of the gospel. Who is it that we believe in? It's Jesus Christ, the one uh, who came not only through water but also by blood. It came through his baptism where God testified to who he was. This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And at the cross... He was crowned the king of God, God's king, the king of God's world, raised up. John says, how do we overcome the world? It's by faith in this Jesus, this son of God, raised up, crucified for our sins. It's not that we overcome the world, you see, by loving more. I think, okay, let's set myself to loving other people. That's not the fountain of our new life. It's not that we overcome the world by thinking to ourselves, all right, I've got to obey God, I've got to, I've got to work harder on these commands. No, that leads to burdensome commands. 
Now, the way to overcome the world, John says, is by really knowing Jesus. It's Jesus, by knowing Jesus, that we're born again by the Spirit of God and transformed. Faith in Jesus is the wellspring of our victory. Is your life driven by the passions and the desires of the world? Then flee to the Son of God. Flee to Jesus. He crucified the flesh and was raised again to everlasting life. I love this verse from Revelation where John also writes there about the martyrs, the Christian martyrs, who overcame Satan's opposition and the world's opposition. He writes, They overcame him, that is Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How did they overcome the world? They overcame the world through the blood of the Lamb and by their gospel witness. And what did it cost them? How did they overcome the world? What did that look like, overcoming the world, being martyred for the faith? How could they do it? How could they not shrink from death? by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Who is it that overcomes the world? He who believes in Jesus Christ. This is the victory, says John, that overcomes the world, even our faith. If we claim to be without sin, he writes in the first chapter, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Well, God, it's a great miracle that some of us can look at our lives and see the love of the world being eclipsed and fading into nothing because of a growing love for you. Lord, some of us can look back and remember a day when our great passions were the world and everything on offer. And yet, Lord, now we can consider them as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and being found in him. Not having a righteousness of our own, but righteousness which is through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, it is an extraordinary miracle and we know that it's nothing of our own doing, that it's only through our faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that he crucified our flesh, that when he died, we died with him that when he was raised to life, we were raised to life, to new spiritual life, 
that begins now and will never end. Thank you that when he was raised up and ascended into heaven, we were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And yet, Lord, some of us don't know that mercy and grace. Lord, some of us are mired in the world and in the love of the world. And Lord, we ask that you would grant them your grace, that they might flee to Christ, that they might cast all their misplaced loves and passions at his feet, that they might be put to death and awakened to the great gospel of your son. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.